Can you just give me your name and say what your title here is? Yeah, so my name is Brian Marsden. I'm Associate Professor for Data Management and Research Informatics. And I'm also Associate Head of Division for Digital and Information. Great. And uh, I don't think you mentioned what unit you were attached to. Because I'm attached to multiple units. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm uh, attached to the Kennedy Institute of Rheumatology within Dorms um, and the Centre for Medicines Discovery in NDM and the Wellcome Centre for Human Genetics in NDM. Right, great, thanks very much. So can you just start by telling me a little bit about yourself, starting from how you first got interested in science, yes. back as far as you like, and the main staging points in your career up to, up to up Gosh. the end of 2019. 20, oh yes, that seems like a long time ago. Um, so yes, science has always been my thing. My father was a scientist. He, he studied uh, at Leeds the, the structure of penicillins back in the 50s and 60s. Um, there was no expectation I would be a scientist, but nevertheless, it, it, it came out that way. So I did my undergraduate degree in natural sciences at Cambridge, focusing primarily on biochemistry. Then came here to Oxford um, to do a DPhil uh, in uh, well biochemistry, uh, looking at extracellular matrix proteins and the dynamics of those with Ian Campbell. Then I moved to um, San Diego. Uh, I worked at the Scripps Research Institute for a number of years, and there I kind of focused more on the computational side of things. So that's where you first got interested in... Yeah, it, it actually happened in the under, undergraduate uh, end of things because um, we soon found out I was very dangerous in the lab. And so uh, there was a, a what is called a silicon graphics machine, which is a very fancy high-end PC, effectively, in the corner that no one's using, and I managed to get it to work, and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, so, but as a consequence, I have, you know, the the wet lab experience as well as the computational experience and can speak both of those languages mm. is a little bit unusual. Um, so yes, at Scripps where I uh, helped them build some of the first high performance compute clusters over there. Worked in uh, the lab of Ruben Abagian um, who was interested in computational chemistry. So I built a number of algorithms there. Then I moved to industry for a number of years at Biofocus. Um, uh, where I led a computational chemistry team on uh, the design of uh, ion channel and kinase inhibitors. And what, what briefly, for, for the ignorant, what is computational chemistry? It's a great question. So computational chemistry, it depends on who you are and how you define it, inevitably. Um, so you can imagine that uh, there is a computational chemistry in terms of the fundamental understanding of how small molecules, particularly organic molecules, um, how, what their shapes may be, what their properties might be. Um, and that's not so much on the drug discovery pathway, that's more like pure theoretical chemistry and use computation to be able to, to calculate these values and simulate them. That's not what I do. Uh, what I do is focusing more on um, using computation to better understand ways to develop small molecules or biologics um, in a drug discovery pipeline. Um, and so uh, this involves not just the small organic small molecule itself, the, the, the drug, but also the protein that that small molecule may actually want to bind to and how it may inhibit it and so on and so forth. Um, and so that's much broader and tends to be a bit more practical. So it, it really is a case of, um, in, in industry, you might do something called a high throughput screen where you, you screen many millions of these small molecules against pro the protein you're interested in that you think is associated with disease and you get some hits and the question then is can one then modify those hits, those small molecules, 
so that they're more potent and selective. So in other words, that they stick better to your protein and they only stick to your protein so you don't have side effects. And that's part so of the drug So are you doing your screening service. in the lab or computationally? Both. Both. So the, so the screening, in the, uh, screening in the lab is done at the Centre for Medicines Discovery or mm. with our partners in industry. And then the mm. results from that then come to us for them to be able to computationally interpret it and to make suggestions, because they're not always right, but suggestions to the chemists about how they may, mod may modify those small molecules to make them better. Mm, uh, mm. And that's the beginnings of the drug discovery process. Mm, mm. So yes. And, what, and what's the, um, let's just drill down a little deeper, what, what is the data that you're putting into your algorithms? Yeah, so um, as I said, there's the high throughput screen, yes. whereby you know what your small molecule is, um, and you know whether it had some impact upon the assay that you're using within the actual uh, uh, high throughput screen. And then you can start looking at the shapes and the structures and the properties of these small molecules. And you might start seeing patterns. Uh, you might start seeing patterns about particular types of um, substructures, as we call them, so particular atoms or collections of atoms on that molecule that might mean that they are more sticky or they are more polar or they are something or they behave in a certain way electronically. And at that point, you can try and correlate that with an understanding of um, the protein that they bind to. So it, the analogy I tend to use is that of, of, of Lego bricks. So you, you, when we solve the structure of a, of a protein, we're effectively writing the, the manual for a Lego uh, model. And we're kind of working out where all the bricks go, what colors, what size, what shapes, um, and then when we have a small molecule, we've got another piece of Lego or sets of pieces of Lego. And what we have to do is to design those sets of pieces of Lego to fit as, as much as possible into the cavity that exists in the main Lego protein model. Mm, mm. Um, so that's, that's what this is all mm. about. It sounds very um, visual and even very 3D, the way you very the analogy you use it. Very 3D. Um, I think what I'm trying to get at as a non-information scientist is um, how you do that computationally? Mm. How you describe the entities? Are they described in terms of their three-dimensional shape yes. or in the forces yes. around them? All, all, of, all, all of those, of those things, things. Yeah. yes. So yeah, I mean, the, the 3D structures at Centre Medicine Discovery, we, we solve the structures of human proteins. Often for the first time, no one's ever seen them before. Mm. And from that, we can then start to understand how those proteins actually work. So the, the, the mechanisms, the mechanics of them. We can also, uh, correlate that with no mutations. So we might know that in a particular position in the protein sequence, there's a change in what is called the residue. And that residue means that there's a change in one of the Lego blocks, effectively. Mm -hmm. So at that point, you could then look in your protein structure in 3D, and you can rotate it around on a computer screen, and you can see how either the change of the color or the change of the shape of that particular Lego brick is going to have an impact on what that protein actually does. Is it switched on more? Is it switched off less? Mm. You know, all these sorts of things. So yes, that's that's how that works. Mm, mm. Yeah. So I completely interrupted your life story. So we got as far as scripts, and you said that was where yeah. we got into the computational. Yeah, that, that, that's right. So then then moved to uh, biofocus. The, 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 oh yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Focus, yeah. And, and then. Um, Worked there for two and a half years and then got very frustrated with the, 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 the lack of blue sky thinking and the risk averse nature of, of industry. Um, and I got called up, um, this is in 2004, um, by a, a person called Michael Sundstrom who helped to co-found the SGC here. Mm. And he said, um, we need someone co to come and do something called research informatics. I thought, well, we'll have a discussion about it. So I came over and he, uh, 
he sat me down and you know, sat in front of the, the PowerPoint slides and he ran through the PowerPoints and it became very clear that what they were trying to do was highly ambitious. They were trying to solve structure of human proteins that had never been done before at scale, so hundreds a year. And this was something that no one thought was possible. Mm. And this was just after, you know, after the human genome had been sequenced, mm. so everybody wanted to get this done. Mm. So, so let's, you said SGC, so yes. this is the Structural, structural Genomics Consortium. Yeah, that was a, which so, was? Well, let me explain. Yeah. So, um, as I said, the human genome uh, was solved to an extent, and we kind of then knew what proteins could be made in a human cell. And so the question then was for the pharmaceutical companies, well, how can we leverage this information to make smarter decisions about drug discovery? And the, the, the existential risk was that there were a number of new startup companies dotted around the world, but particularly on the west coast of the US, which said, ah, well, we've got access to the human genome. We're going to solve the structure of the human protein. I'm going to license them to you for large amounts of money. And the pharma company said, this is not a good thing. What we need is a pre-competitive effort that is going to solve these structures, put them out in the public domain without you know, any burden of use. You, know, you, don't, you don't have to pay for it, it's just freely available, and that will neuter that problem and everything is good. Um, now, it turns out that solving these human protein structures is a heck of a lot more harder than anyone thought it was going to be. So, uh, back in 2000, this originally sort of kicked off around about 2000, 2001, and at that point there were about seven or eight farmers involved. But by 2003, it became clear this wasn't such an existential risk. And then there was only GSK involved and, um, and the Wellcome, or Wellcome Trust as it was then. And the Wellcome Trust wanted to leverage its investment into the, you know, the solving of the human genome. And, and that seemed like the next obvious step. So they, they said, well, we need to set up a, a pre-competitive structural genomics consortium, which is what they did here in Oxford and also in Toronto. So yes, so I then came in and uh, helped to build the, mostly the data management and some computational chemistry around that. And the idea was that the SGC would um, make all these human and proteins. And we did, yes. Yep. And, and make them, it was a, an open access project. Totally we, open access, yep. yes, exactly. And you know, I, I think at the last count, we've sold over 2,000 of them, and we are the world leaders on this. Um, so yes, very exciting. Mm, mm. Mm. And the the technology to solve those structures was was that again partly computational and partly using things like the diamond light source to yes to well diamond didn't exist in those days oh, right. so no, we had to right. use a, a place called ESRF um, in, in France mm. but um, th there is some computational aspect to that although that was not what I was responsible for as, as part of the solving of protein structures you can use a method called crystallography mm -hmm. which is where you have your protein, very pure, some very small amounts of it, and you put it into something called a crystallization experiment, whereby you try and coax the protein to turn into a crystal, a very uniform crystal. And these crystals are often smaller than the naked eye can see, but yet you can um, shoot very strong x-ray beams through them, which from a synchrotron like ESRF or, or diamond. And from that, you get diffraction of the x-ray beams according to how the atoms are placed within your protein. So using some very fancy maths and some computation, you could then infer roughly where all the atoms are and therefore you know where your Lego bricks are and therefore you've got the structure. Um, so there is some computation involved with that, but not as much as you might imagine actually. Mm -hmm. The hard step is actually making the protein, making sure it's stable, making sure you can get the crystals, and actually solving the structure actually is not that hard in the mm -hmm. grand scheme of things. 
So what was your role? You said your role. Yeah, so, so SGC, we wanted to do things a little bit differently. We, we knew we were an academic organisation, but yet we have industry milestones and deliverables in the sense that, you know, our funders expected us to deliver X structures per year, right? Or actually X structures per month, actually. Um, and we knew that we, we couldn't do everything in a standard academic process. And so a number of us that were hired, I was employing like number three, I think, but there, there were four or five of us who came from industry and knew how to work in a process-oriented kind of approach, um, in an industrial approach in terms of making sure you meet the, the deliverables and the milestones. And as part of that, it became increasingly clear that what we needed to have was a, an appropriate data management infrastructure underneath that to capture information about um, what proteins we're working on, what ways we have tried to make the protein, um, what ways we've tried to solve the structure of the protein, what work, you know, and, and all that sort of infrastructure around that. So electronic lab notebooks, databases, and so forth. So that's what I built over the first four or five years within the SGC. And that was used in Oxford, but also the other SGC nodes around the world as well. So yeah, that, that, so I, that, that was the point at which I tend to move away from the computational chemistry and more to the, what I call the standard data management mm. aspects. What I guess in the library you call metadata. Well, yes, that's right. So metadata being uh, information about data, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and making sure you're capturing as much metadata as possible because you can never go backwards. And so, um, I mean, what, what were your main concerns up to, well, actually, I'm not, the timing is interesting. Um, because you, I mean, you moved from the SGC to the um, Centre for Drug. Sorry, I'm, I keep forgetting. The no, name. no let, let me explain a little bit. There's a bit. There's a bit more history. There's a bit more history. So the SGC here in Oxford existed until 2020. Yes. And um, in 2020, the university uh, made the decision that we should no longer be part of the SGC right. for various reasons. And so, but we still exist. And so we had to relaunch ourselves. So now we're known as the Centre for Medicines Discovery. Oh, I we're see. So it's just still the Oxford node of the right. SGC but has we are become not, the Centre for Medicines We're not affiliated with the SGC anymore, yep. but we are still doing SGC-like things in the sense that the science is the same and the ethos is the same in that we are still very strong proponents of open access science and you know, making reagents and know-how available to other scientists to really catalyse the drug discovery process. Mm. And the, I mean, the data is interesting because I tend to talk to people about what they did up to the end of 2019 and then January 2020, COVID is on the horizon and so that changes everything. But that you're saying this change happened during 2020. Was it already in the wind before the pandemic came along? Um, it was mooted probably, it, it, it became clear that it was a possibility around November, December 2019, I think. And mm. then there were a lot of very difficult conversations that occurred over the, the following period yeah. and how that was going to yeah. work. Yeah. And how? And let's just cover this now and we'll get on to COVID in a minute. Um, uh, who, who are your customers essentially? Because you work as a, essentially as a service to other researchers. Well, well we do and we don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we, we, we are not like the SGC back in what we call phase one, which was years 2004 to 2007. And there we had a single mission, which was solve the structures. That was it. There was nothing else. It was not write papers or bring in grant funding. It was so, but of course, you know, that cannot last. 
and, and we were fortunate to be funded you know, four times by Wellcome, three times by up to nine pharma companies at any one moment. You know, that's a heck of a lot of money. Mm. But those days have moved on and that's not possible anymore. And mm. so we now are much more academic in, in the sense that we are having to bring in the grant funding to do what we want to do. Um, and there are clear academic projects in the classical sense that are being run. Having said that, we still retain a lot of the SGC's best things, um, particularly around platforms. So we have uh, what are in the university are called small research facilities um, around protein crystallography, around what we call biotechnology, so that's the production of the proteins, around the screening of the proteins with small molecules, and around the data management actually. And those are self-sufficient in, in the sense that they provide services to the rest of the CMD, as well as other people in the university and industry as well. So our customers are ourselves, um, local collaborators, local biotech and SME, and industry. Uh, and actually, the data that we're producing collectively within CMD, our customer is the world. Because you know, the, the structures, the know-how, the expertise that we put out freely available, we know is highly prized by people because they know it is reproducible. And you're probably aware that there's a bit of a reproducibility crisis in academic science, particularly discovery science. Um, one of the reasons why we, we got up to the point where we had Nine Pharma funding us at any one moment and they kept coming back was because they knew that if they asked us to do something, solve a structure that they were interested in, they would be able to replicate it first time in their lab. And if they couldn't, they could pick up a phone and talk to us. Um, and, and so th that has been transformative to many of our pharma partners. Of course, they can never really describe what the actual impact is because you know, they're not going to tell us how many proprietary programs we've, been, we've enabled. But we know we've enabled very many. We know we've enabled a number of drugs. And critically, we know that we have um, provided data or capability to generate data that has terminated projects early, which in industry is particularly important. Save a lot of money. Yes. Yes. And time and duplication of effort. Yes. 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 Yeah. So let's finally arrive at COVID. Um, I, I'm asking everybody this. Can you remember where you were when you first heard that there was something happening in China and, and how soon it was before you uh, realised that A, it was going to be serious and B, it was going to involve you? <laughs> well, so I don't remember where I was when it really started to pick up. I mean, um, it became clear early March that something was going on. Mm. Obviously, by middle of March, it was clear something was going <laughs> on. Um, and we didn't really know what that meant for us. We were just, you know, there was lots of concerns, understandably. Um, and uh, one of my bosses, Chess Boundary, said, Brian, you need to go and help out on this. It's like, well, I don't know what people want. And, and then it was on a Sunday uh, in the first week of April, like April the 4th or something like that. And Dave Stewart, um, called me up and said, Brian, we need you. Okay, what do you need? Um, we need a data platform because we're going to do a serology platform. Um, we need it in two weeks. So, uh, okay. How, how long would it normally take you? To uh, about nine months. Um, <laughs> and I said, Dave, you do realise it's going to take nine months. Said, oh, we don't have time for that. You just got to do what you can. You know, this is, a, this is an international emergency. Said, Dave, I get it, but I'm just warning you. I'm trying to... And of course, it didn't take us two weeks. It took us six or seven. But nevertheless, um, that's when it all really kicked off. Mm. And then life became very, very busy very, very quickly. And what was that platform set up to do? So um, 
I have spoken to Dave, I have spoken to Derek. But, 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 let, but me, let me give, my, let me give yes. my perspective. So <laughs> as, as you will remember with the discussions for them, this is a, um, a, a platform to take uh, participants or patients' uh, blood samples and to determine how much, what, what, to what degree they had antibodies against the spike protein in COVID-19. And uh, yeah, so the, it, it became very clear that the government needed a way to do this in a kind of surveillance mode. And it became very clear that Office of National Statistics was going to be involved, and then Sarah Walker got involved. And you know, at that point, it's like, well, there's half a million in the cohort. It's going to be about 6,000 samples a day, thank you very much. And it's going to, may even be a 24-7 thing. This is what we thought at the beginning. Um, and then, of course, we, we had to commandeer the, the robotics in the Target Discovery Institute from Dan Ebner's group, and there were lots of problems associated with that. No reflection upon him. It's just really hard to set up. And, and what we had to do, and I, I'm fortunate that my team at the CMD are just so flexible, is we were not in a position to be able to define what the requirements were for the data management around that, because it was changing daily. We knew we were going to have to work with um, the uh, Office of National Statistics, with the company IQVIA that was dealing with the logistics of receiving the samples and getting them to Oxford. Can you just say that name again? IQVIA, I-Q-V-I-A. Um, so they were the, the company that worked with the government to do the logistics around, you know, it was originally going to be Amazon and it didn't work out and, and Royal Mail and so on and so forth. It was very complicated in those days. And so we had, because we, were, we had to know what the samples were that were coming, uh, so that when we reported the samples back to the Office of National Statistics and the UK government, we were, you know, using the right identifiers so that they could then merge that data back into what they had. So it... it obviously became very complicated in three ways in the sense that um, we had to be able to take data in on a daily basis from a third-party organization who were in as, just as much blind panic as we were and we had to provide data to an organization which were also just in as much of blind panic as we were and lots of discussions around them and they do not necessarily speak academia and we do not necessarily speak government or industry and so one of my roles was to try and have these conversations and to develop these conduits for this, this data. So that was challenging. But the most challenging thing was we actually didn't know what our assay was going to be. We, we knew it was going to be an ELISA assay. We knew that. That's fine. But we didn't know how it was going to operate. We didn't know how the data was going to come off. We didn't know how to make decisions about quality control. We didn't know how to make decisions about how to analyze the data. And we didn't really know how to report it. And this we were learning on the fly. And that all sounds great, right? But what we had to build was a database and a web platform that sits on top of it, which everyone across the whole team in Oxford would have access to, to be able to you know, upload the data, um, be able to track how things were going, check the quality control, and so on and so forth. And you know, I'm very fortunate that, that you know, the couple of people on my team who did this pretty much 24-7 for the first couple of weeks were really open to the idea of things changing all the time. So, you know, they'd write a bit of code and it was right for t yesterday, but this morning we've changed things slightly and that code is going to have to change. And under normal circumstances, my team will get very frustrated by that because it's a waste of time. But this is just a function of how things was op were operating at that stage. So normally you would have done all that um, prep and testing and setting up before we even started. Yeah, and, and then we would have sat down and sat and said, well, you know what you want to do now, so just tell us precisely, you know, how you want to 
capture the data, work with the data, present the data, and we'll build something around you. No, this was this was a, a deep collaboration where they were saying, no, we're going to do it this way now. And we're, and we're saying, well, we can't produce something that quick, but what if we do it this way? And then they changed their approach. So there was a lot of to and fro, and that worked incredibly well. Mm-hmm. And, and how long did that um, six, six to seven weeks. Six to seven weeks, yes. yes. To get the initial thing up and running. Yeah. Um, to be fair, we probably had something working within four weeks, but the, the, the on the data management, but on the actual assay platform itself, it was more like six to seven weeks. Mm. So it was more like end of May, early June before we really had something that we could go to ONS and say, it's good, let's go. Mm-hmm. And so was it from that point that the ONS started publishing the national data so you'd get the yes, six exactly. every week? Yeah, 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 exactly. And did the platform have a name just? Oh, the data platform's called Eliza Limbs. Right. Because I couldn't think of anything better. Library Information Management System? No, so, it, yeah, no. so there's ELISA and then LIM stands for Laboratory Information Laboratory Management System. System. Also known as Electron Lamp Book, no, yeah. book but it was bespoke. Um, yeah, so. Mm. Mm, mm. But that was only the first project, was it not? Oh, yes, and well, yes, uh, there have been a couple of projects. So let's talk a little, let's stick on that one and just mm. say that um, you know, the ELISA LIMS platform is now used out in, in Thailand. At Morrow, um, they've been using that for their. Uh, that's the Imahidolox with research unit. Yes, it is. Yeah. So that's yeah. so that's been a real success for us is being able to take what we built with lots of sticky tape and uh, elastic bands, um, and to be able to transplant that somewhere else and get it to adapt to the way that they're working, which is very different from the way that we were working here. The volume is different, expectations are different. That's been a huge success. And is that also looking at? at COVID? And other pathogens yes, as they're, well. they're mainly interested in malaria. Yes, though. I mean, they're, they're, they're just finished going through the COVID, but mm. there are other pathogens that they're, they're starting to look at now. So um, I think that's been a huge success too. Mm. So there's that. And is it still running now so, so in the, the UK? So the UK one is running until the end of this March. Right. Um, by which time we'll have done three years and that'll be enough. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's great, but when, when you have to look at the data, I've looked at the data every evening for the last three years without exception, because I'm the one that gatekeeps whether the data is good enough to go or not. Um, and it's fine, we've, we've got it down to a fine art and I can tell within 10 minutes whether we've got problems or not. But if there are problems, then I need to be calling up the lab managers and saying, well, this plate didn't run very well, do we understand why are the robots behaving properly? Have we got issues with reagents? There's a lot of moving parts that can go wrong on a daily basis. Um, so yes, I shall not miss that. And does that mean ONS are going to stop collecting from their household survey Correct. at the end of March? Correct. Right. There's I no more funding. There's no, there's no more funding. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. Mm. It's interesting. So the other thing that I did um, during the pandemic was to support a really unusual project called COMBAT, um, which is basically a, what is called a multimodal blood atlas. Multi-omic. Yes, or multimodal in this case. I'll exp- I I'll, I'll ex- they called it multi-omic. Yeah, but let me, I'll explain why I call it multimodal in a minute. Right. But yes, multi-omic. Um, it, and the idea behind this was that there was already a recognition really early on that there may be some uh, similarities between the way COVID um, has an effect upon your, um, your respiratory pathway um, and flu and sepsis similarly. And there was a, a wonder of whether there might be you know, really common reasons why these things are happening between these different diseases, effectively. And so what was remarkable about this project was um, 
well, a number of things were remarkable about it. Remarkably, we had access to around about 150 patients with flu, sepsis and COVID, um, and COVID different levels of severity, including unfortunately those who died. Um, and we were able to get blood samples longitudinally, so at different time points during their, uh, their disease progression. And um, we were then able to amass a lot of expertise and capability across the university to be able to use those blood samples on different um, pieces of kit to ask different sorts of questions. Yes, yeah, so we have the um, blood samples that we were able to run across different types of uh, technologies to understand what features there might be in the blood samples that would describe the different severity levels of the COVID or the flu or the sepsis. And why this was remarkable was a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, everybody wanted to help out in a COVID context. So we had, I think it was over 120 researchers from 20 different departments across three different divisions in the university. That has never happened before. And we were all able to work together because none of us were in. Well, very few of us win, right? And, and I think, I'll talk, maybe talk more about this later, this was the beginnings of a, a really strong recognition of the way collaboration can occur without walls uh, going forward. So that, that, that was very cool. Um, I think the other cool thing was that we made a decision early on that, um, Yes, the, the pieces of kit, the laboratory uh, uh, platforms were in different platforms around the university and you know, we'd have to get the blood samples to them, they would run them there, they would get the data, but the data wouldn't sit there. Instead, the data would be put into a central data warehouse, which everyone would have access to and everyone would be able to operate upon in the same place. And, and the beauty about this is that we didn't have, we avoided the usual problems of people not knowing what the gold standard data is and is this the copy, is it the right version? So we had to put things in like identifiers for particular data releases. So, you know, we made clear that if anyone presented something within the combat team, they always used the identifiers, everyone knew what they were talking about and how they got there. So the provenance was well captured, um, that it was structured in a way that we understood who owned what, it was structured in a way that we knew what had happened to that data and that really paid dividends. Uh, and that was a new way of working for many people, something I've done for a long time, but across so many departments and so many uh, people, that was quite revolutionary here in Oxford. Um, it, it might be more normal in other universities where it's, it's a little more top down, but in a federated place like this, that's very challenging. So that was pretty cool. Um, and uh, being able to take the clinical data, the clinical metadata, and be able to integrate that with molecular and cellular data what, and together that's what we call multimodal data. It includes the multiomics but it also includes the clinical data and that's why it's multimodal. Um, that really hadn't been done in this way before either. So you know, you know, the, the people who were looking at the, particularly the genomic data, were able to stratify their, what they were seeing relative to what the clinicians had marked down as part of the sample. Normally there's a big chasm between and you, you, know, you can't do that dynamically. So that was very cool. And of so course, what, I mean, what you're saying is that um, somebody, say someone who was especially sick with COVID or a group of people who seemed to be especially sick might have a particular genetic signature. For example, or, or blood, and that's, blood signature. that's it. Yeah. We were, you know, the, the technical terms, we were looking for interesting biomarkers. Um, and uh, yet being able to segregate what you're seeing relative to the actual symptoms or the disease 
clearly, I mean, it's, it's, it's common sense that that's the right thing to do, but you'd be surprised how hard it is to do that in normal practice. Mm, mm. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you had anything to, I did look at their papers, had anything to do with how the data was represented graphically, because that seemed no, innovative. No, I, I, I didn't, mm. um, but I had, not directly, but I did have some input into bringing in Steve Taylor in particular, who has um, some really cool ways of presenting quite complex, um, you know, multidimensional data in a way that if you're not computational, but you are a biologist, you might be able to interpret and, and navigate. And that, that was pretty cool, yeah, mm, yeah mm. exactly. Mm. And how long did that, when did oh, that um, go on? So I think we started, it, it was kind of mooted around June, July time that we were gonna do this. We got emergency funding from the university or the division to do it. Um, and things really, it, it really took a year to get most of the work done and for the first draft of the cell paper um, to be pulled together. I mean, it, just even pulling that cell paper together was a, a feat in itself with so many collaborators mm. and so much data and trying to come up with the, the one story that made sense because there are so many interesting sub-stories out of it, but what is the one story that you can you know, sell in a cell paper? And, and what do you think has been the impact of of that paper? Not as much as I think we might have imagined. I think in the end a lot of the data that we found um, replicated many other papers but we did it all in one go. So I, I'm not sure there's anything that was uh, unexpected by the time we had the paper accepted. But when we were writing the paper there weren't the papers out there that said otherwise but as unfortunate as we went through the reviewing process um, other things came out. So, so I think the impact from that perspective was a lot lower than perhaps you would have liked. But I think the biggest impact has been, as I mentioned earlier, the, um, the change in perspective about how collaborations should be done. And the recognition that it is possible to work across departments and it is possible to be less insular. And it, and it is almost now expected that you will have a multi-skilled, multi-talented you know, uh, approach to solving a particular problem. Um, and so that's one aspect. And the other aspect is the data management. Now everybody wants to do what we did. And so I'm very fortunate that we're in really high demand to replicate this on a project-by-project -project basis now. Well, that, I was definitely including that in yes. what I was thinking of talking yes. about as, as yeah. impact. So, so yeah. that's given you a lot more work to do. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> So I just wanted to pick up on that collaboration point again because I think it's very important. Um, I mean, even even within labs uh, and certainly between institutions, uh, academic life can be quite competitive. Uh, but clearly, what was going on during COVID, a lot of that fell away because of the urgency of putting minds together to crack. But not just the urgency. I mean, the, the, there was no competition because none of this was anybody's field. So this, and, and everybody knew that if they didn't play, it was gonna have a negative impact upon their career anyway. So a lot of the, the boundaries broke down as a consequence and, and many of them have stayed down because many of my colleagues have recognized that this is, they might not have felt comfortable doing it this way, but it worked really well and it's now expected. And there are always gonna be some that don't see that, but they're gonna to fall to the wayside because this is just the new way of working.
And it's fine to have to be one name among 200 on, on a, a paper. A, 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 within <laughs> reason. Well, well yes. for something like that, mm. yes, absolutely. Mm. Uh, um, but the pressure then is to get it in the very best journal, right? Yeah. Um, but the, you know, the data that we generated in combat and even the data we generated on the serology platform has spawned so many sub-projects and, uh, uh, and papers with smaller authorships that everybody's benefited in some way, somehow. Mm, mm. And, and so what are you mainly working on now? Well, uh, <laughs> so uh, my CMD research informatics team is busy providing lots of data management solutions to collaborators around here, collaborators around the world, particularly around the early, early stage drug discovery aspects. Um, I've just joined the Welcome Center here to help set up a, a big new data hub platform, which is kind of the kind of like the, the son of the of the big thing that we did in combat. Um, I, and I work very closely at a divisional level um, to make sure that we're doing the right thing around digital and information as well. Mm, mm. Um, and, and so I think we've we've got there very fast, but you'll tell me if we've left anything out. <laughs> but how did working through the pandemic impact on you personally? I mean, you mentioned at one point that none of you were in. Um, well, that was the least of our problems. I yeah. mean, it was, it was really interesting how, of course, many colleagues who could not find things to do during pandemic um, really were bored silly. And, you know, there's only so many papers you can write and papers you can read. And you, but when you can't be in a lab and you can't generate data, and this is very damaging, um, not only to their careers, but also their mental health. Um, you know, I, I had students who could not be in the lab um, and, and needed to be. I had students who were purely computational and therefore could work at home, but yet they were stuck here in Oxford, isolated. They couldn't be around friends, they couldn't be around family. And you know, one of them basically lost a year as a consequence of that. Um, fortunately, the university put in some fairly good safeguards around that and we could mitigate it. But mm. nevertheless, that, that had a huge impact upon people. For those of us that were working at kind of like the coalface, uh, we never worked so hard in our entire lives. Mm, mm. And it was, you know, there were some days when I was up to two or three in the morning trying to unravel why the data from the previous day wasn't right. Um, and then, you know, you, you have an eight o'clock meeting every morning just to summarize where you are. There, there wasn't an awful lot of sleep. And that had a major impact upon my family, bluntly. They didn't see much of me. Um, and that was tough for them too. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, and was there anything you were able to do to um, support your, your well-being through all that? Or was there just not time? This wasn't time. I mean, it, to be clear, I mean, we weren't as busy as the, the people in the Jenna, right? I mean, <laughs> they really, were, I mean, they made us look like we were hardly working at all. but. Um, you know, it was just constant and it, it was, even at weekends, there were phone calls and, you know, something's broken or we need to think about this or the government's asked for this and they want it within the next three hours, you know. It, it's, it's tough when the things like that happen, so you just have to plow on. But, you, you know, I was at home, right, so I wasn't coming in. So the family saw me, but they kind of didn't see me. <laughs> and how threatened did you feel by the virus itself, by the possibility of infection? I, I assumed I was going to get it. There was no doubt about it. Um, uh, but I was concerned about that because my wife is in a high-risk category. Um, for, actually, to this date, none of us have had it. I hope it stays that way. But, yeah, it was always a concern. Mm, mm. Yeah. Um, but you were, yeah, you, you were staying at home. You weren't actually... 
Well, I, I had to. I mean, one of the things that I'm responsible for is a lot of IT infrastructure, um, which support was supporting what we were doing. So I did have to come in occasionally, but of course the place was deserted anyway, mm -hmm. and you were just scrupulously careful about what you touched and how you did things, and it was fine. It worked okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, one thing I didn't pick up earlier, um, you, you mentioned the government was one of the things you were dealing with. Was that something you, um, you were you personally interacting with civil servants? Or did yes, you, yeah. yes. Because um, they, they was were... Was that a new experience for you? Of course. Yes. Um, but I think, you know, under normal times, I think it would have been harder. But because we were all in the same boat, you know, we recognised that civil servants were under enormous pressure by the government um, to deliver answers and to deliver data to be able to explain to the population what was going on and why it was important that they were making the decisions they were making. And, you know, it wasn't unusual for, you know, to find yourself on a call with civil servants very, very stressed out, taking it out on you. And, you know, you completely understand that. And, and you find ways to work collaboratively with them um, to help them out, because that's, that's how it worked. And in the end, I mean, there was quite a lot of turnover of civil servants over that time because I think a lot of them found it really hard. Um, but we had lots of very good working relationships with them and, it, and you know, it, it, it was good. Mm -hmm. And did the fact that you were working on something that was so important, do you, do you think that supported your, your own well-being through this very stressful time? I don't time? think it, I didn't realise, when we first started, I didn't realise how important it was. And actually, it really wasn't until... It really wasn't until probably end of 2020, early 21, when it became clear, when you know the, the big national lockdowns were occurring and, and the numbers were appearing you know, on the Downing Street. It was only then that I realized, oh, hang on, that's my data. <laughs> <laughs> and because there's so many steps removed from you, know, you producing the data, giving it to ONS, ONS does the analysis, then they give it to DHSC, DHSC then talk to the civil servants who then talk to you know, number 10, and you don't see it, right? And, and actually, we on the serology platform really didn't understand what happened to the data afterwards. And we weren't about to go and ask ONS because they were stressed out enough as it was. So it wasn't really until the middle of 21, end of 21, that we were able to get ONS to sit down and actually show us how they're using the data in their modelling. And it's like, oh, that's very cool. <laughs> um, but at the time, we didn't know how important it was. Um, there seemed like far more important things going on. We, we just felt like we were just a, a small thing that might, might be helping. Mm, mm. <laughs> um, and are there any any particular stories that stick in your mind from the time about? Um, I'm not good at remembering these things. <laughs> <laughs> um, not really. I think it was just trying to make sure that we could deliver, trying to look after people, um, people's mental health on the team because they were going above and beyond. Even, you know, those on shift work, you know, they were staying longer to make sure that things were done. They were getting very stressed when things weren't working, which was good, but bad. Um, and just the way that, you know, if, if there was a problem, we all kind of mucked in together and made it happen. And we didn't always get the right solution, but we got to the point where the data was always acceptable to those who cared. Mm, mm. Mm. 
So I, th I think I've I think I've reached the end of my list. Well, there you go. <laughs> Which is, I mean, the last question is really whether the uh, experience of working through those COVID projects has has changed your attitude or your approach to your work. A absolutely, hundred um, percent. In what way? In in the way that I can now have confidence that if someone throws something big at me, there's a way in which we can get it done. And it's not about me, it's about the team and the collective. And is there anything you'd like to see change in the future? With regard to? With how things are organised. Well, I mean, we, I, mean I, I mentioned the, the aspects of collaboration, yes, right? Yes. And then, you know, the university is set up in a particular way that has served it very well over a long period of time. I think there is a lot of understanding that things change, are changing and I, I don't think there's a good solution to this but we have to find approaches and methods that support that collaborative way of working in a more seamless way and to, to lower the energy barrier to catalyse the sort of research that we can do if we work together. Brilliant, thanks very much. That's right.